Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for standing by. Welcome to Wheaton Precious Metals 2020 fourth quarter and full year results conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there'll be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. Thank you. I would like to remind everyone that this conference call is being recorded on March 12th, 2020 at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. I will now turn the conference over to Mr. Patrick Druin, Senior Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you, Operator. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for participating in today's call. I'm joined today by Randy Smallwood, Wheaton Precious Metals President and Chief Executive Officer, Gary Brown, Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, and Haytham Holloway, Senior Vice President, Corporate Development. I'd like to bring to your attention that some of the commentary in today's call may contain forward-looking statements. There can be no assurances that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate, as actual results and future events could differ materially from those anticipated in such statements. In addition to our financial results cautionary note regarding forward-looking statements, please refer to the section entitled Description of the Business Risk Factors in Wheaton's Annual Information Form and the Risk Identified under Risk and Uncertainty in Management's Discussion and Analysis for the year ended December 31st, 2020, both available on CDAR and in Wheaton's Form 40F and Wheaton's Form 6K, both available on EDGAR. These documents in the press release from last night set out the material assumptions and risk factors that could cause actual results to differ, including, among others, fluctuations in the price of commodities, impacts on Wheaton uh, or mining operations from which Wheaton purchases precious metals as a result of an epidemic, risks related to mining operations from which Wheaton purchases precious metals, the continued ability of Wheaton's counterparties to satisfy their obligations under precious metal purchase agreements, and the impact of any ongoing audits by CRA. It should be noted that all figures referred to on today's call are in U.S. dollars unless otherwise noted. Now I'd like to turn the call over to Randy Smallwood, our President and Chief Executive Officer. Thank you, Patrick, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today to discuss Wheaton's fourth quarter and year-end results of 2020. I do hope everyone has been keeping healthy and safe since our last quarterly conference call. As we near the one-year mark of the COVID-19 pandemic, our top priority at Wheaton remains the welfare of our employees, our mining partners, and the communities in which we operate. Despite the challenges posed by this pandemic, 2020 was a very productive year and we were successful in delivering value back to our shareholders on so many fronts. I am pleased to announce that in 2020, Wheaton's high-quality portfolio of assets generated revenue of over $1 billion, an operating cash flow of over $765 million, both records for the company. And given Wheaton's innovative dividend policy, this strong cash flow has resulted in a 30% increase to our minimum quarterly dividend relative to last year. In addition, we were pleased to execute on our growth strategy, announcing two accretive act transactions in 2020 on the Mermato Mine located in Colombia and the Cozumel Mine located in Mexico. 
Our confidence in our ability to deliver continued long-term organic growth from our portfolio has also led us to introduce 10-year production guidance for the first time, in addition to our usual one- and five-year forecasts. I will provide more details on our growth profile later in this call, but I would first like to turn the call over to Gary Brown, Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, who will provide more details on our results. Gary. Thank you, Randy, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The company's precious metal interests produced 178,800 gold equivalent ounces in the fourth quarter of 2020, comprised of 93,100 ounces of gold, 6.5 million ounces of silver, and 5,700 ounces of palladium. Relative to the fourth quarter of the prior year, this represented a decrease of 4% on a gold equivalent basis, with lower production at Salobo and Triple Sub. 777, resulting from the temporary suspension of operations at each mine site, being partially offset by the mining of higher-grade material at Antamina. On a gold-equivalent basis, sales volumes decreased 3% in line with the lower production levels. As at December 31, 2020, ounces produced but not delivered, or PBND, amounted to approximately 133,000 gold-equivalent payable ounces, representing approximately 2.2 months of payable production. This amount of PBND is consistent with the average PBND balance of approximately 139,000 gold-equivalent ounces over the preceding four quarters. Revenue for the fourth quarter of 2020 amounted to $286 million, representing a 28% increase relative to Q4 2019, primarily due to a 33% increase in the average realized gold equivalent price, partially offset by the 3% decrease in sales volumes. Of this revenue, 57% was attributable to gold, 39% to silver, and 4% to palladium. Gross margin for the fourth quarter of 2020 increased 69% to $162 million, once again highlighting the leverage our business model provides to increasing precious metal prices. Cash-based G&A expenses amounted to $8 million in the fourth quarter of 2020, representing a decrease of $2 million from Q4 2019, primarily due to lower accrued costs associated with the performance chair units, or PSUs, which, which was partially offset by higher charitable donations with the company donating nearly $1 million relative to the previously announced $5 million community support and response fund related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Interest costs for the fourth quarter of 2020 amounted to $1 million, resulting in an effective interest rate on outstanding debt of 1.2%, as compared to $8 million of interest costs at an effective interest rate of 3.62% incurred in Q4 2019 with the average outstanding debt balance decreasing 39% during the most recently completed quarter and being 63% lower than it was in the fourth quarter of 2019. Net earnings amounted to $157 million in the fourth quarter of 2020, more than double that generated in Q4 2019. Basic adjusted earnings per share increased 101% to $0.33 cents compared to $0.17 cents per share in the prior year. Operating cash flow for the fourth quarter of 2020 amounted to $208 million, or $0.46 cents per share, compared to $132 million, or $0.29 cents per share in the prior year, 
representing a 57% increase on a per share basis. Based on the company's dividend policy, the company's board has declared a dividend of 13 cents per share, an increase of 8% compared to the prior quarter, payable to shareholders of record on March 26, 2021. Under the dividend reinvestment plan, the board has elected to offer shareholders the option of having their dividends reinvested in newly issued common shares of the company at a 1% discount to market. Relative to 2021, the company is setting the dividend floor at $0.13 cents per share, a 30% increase from the floor that was established relative to 2020, highlighting the continued strength of the company's operating cash flows and the benefits of the company's unique dividend policy, whereby dividend distributions are targeted at 30% of operating cash flow. During the fourth quarter of 2020, the company repaid $293 million on the revolving facility and made dividend payments of $47 million, with these cash outflows being partially offset by the proceeds from the sale of First Majestic shares in the amount of $113 million. Overall, net cash outflows amounted to $17 million in Q4 2020, resulting in cash and cash equivalents at December 31st of $193 million. This, combined with the $195 million outstanding under the revolving facility, resulted in a net debt position as at December 31st of only $2 million. For the year ended December 31st, 2020, production on a gold equivalent basis met the company's revised guidance and was within 2% of the original guidance, despite the various shutdowns in the second quarter resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. Despite the pandemic, sales volumes were virtually unchanged relative to 2019, primarily due to relative changes to the ounces produced but not delivered. Revenue for the year amounted to a record $1.1 billion, the first time in the company's history that we have broken the $1 billion mark. Of this revenue, 60% was attributable to gold sales, 36% to silver, and 4% to palladium. On a gold equivalent basis, average realized commodity prices rose by 28% in 2020, leading to an increase in gross margin of 69%. Cash-based G&A expenses in 2020 amounted to $60 million, representing an increase of $11 million from 2019, with the increase being primarily related to higher accrued costs associated with the PSUs and higher charitable donations. For 2021, the company estimates that non-stock-based G&A expenses, which exclude expenses relating to the value of stock options and PSUs, will amount to $42 to $45 million. Interest costs for 2020 amounted to $12 million, a decrease of $33 million relative to 2019, resulting in an effective interest rate on outstanding debt of 2.03%. Basic adjusted earnings per share increased 106% to $1.12 compared to $0.54 per share in the prior year. Cash flow from operations amounted to $765 million, an increase of 53% as compared to 2019, primarily due to the higher commodity prices. This translated into operating cash flow per share of $1.71 compared to $1.12 in 2019. Having ended 2020 in a neutral net debt position, the capacity provided by the $2 billion revolving credit facility combined with the strong forecast operating cash flows 
positions the company very well to satisfy its funding commitments and sustain its dividend policy, while at the same time having the flexibility to consummate additional accretive precious metal purchase agreements. That concludes the financial summary, and with that, I turn the call back over to Randy. Thank you, Gary. We are pleased to reiterate our 2021 and long-term production guidance previously announced in February. For 2021, Wheaton's estimated attributable production is forecast to range between 370 to 400,000 ounces of gold, 22 to 24 million ounces of silver, and 40 to 45,000 gold equivalent ounces of cobalt and palladium amounting to total gold equivalent production of approximately 720 to 780,000 ounces. In 2021, gold production is forecast to increase, mainly driven by growth at Salobo, San Damas, and Constancia. Silver production is forecast to increase as additional ounces from Cozumel and Kino Hill are expected. Palladium production is expected to remain stable in 2021, and for the first time, we have cobalt production from the Voices Bay mine, with our first shipments having already been received in February. Looking forward, we anticipate steady organic growth building over the next five years, with gold equivalent production averaging 810,000 ounces per year, growing to 830,000 ounces per year over a 10-year time horizon. Average production over the next five years and ten years is expected to increase primarily due to continued production growth from Salobo, Constancia, Penasquito, and Stillwater, as well as incremental ounces from the Mermato, Cozumel, and Boise's Bay streams. While HUD Bay's progress on the Rosemont project appears promising, production from Rosemont is not included in the Wheaton five-year guidance but is reflected in the 10-year forecast. And lastly, although Barrick continues to advance a comprehensive review of the Pascualama project and Pan American continues advancing discussions on Navidad, without any framework on timing, Wheaton does not currently include any production from these projects in its long-term forecasts. On the corporate development front, despite travel restrictions, our team was busier than ever in 2020 announcing two new streaming agreements and reviewing numerous other opportunities. We quickly adapted to the new environment and developed alternative methods for due diligence, allowing us to continue to thoroughly review potential new acquisitions. We were pleased to add two high-quality assets to our portfolio, a silver and gold stream on the Mermato project located in Colombia and a silver stream on the Cozumel mine in Mexico which we are welcoming back into our asset base after our previous stream at Cozumel ended in 2017. We believe both these projects demonstrate strong upside potential and will provide our shareholders with further opportunities for organic growth. Our corporate development pipeline remains robust, and looking ahead, we will continue to focus on acquiring accretive precious metal streams that complement our high-quality portfolio. The importance of delivering shareholder value while minimizing our impacts and supporting our local communities was never more evident than in 2020. And as a streaming company, we recognize that the stronger our partners are, the stronger we are. So to support our mining partners and local communities, we launched a $5 million fund to help address and alleviate the impacts of this pandemic, 
with, which more than doubled our existing community investment budget. At the end of 2020, over three million of that has been had been deployed in support of initiatives with our mining partners and frontline organizations, including food banks, shelters, and hospitals. Wheaton has always strived to be a sustainability leader in the precious metal streaming space, and this year we significantly increased our disclosure around ESG risk management through the release of our inaugural sustainability report. We were honored to be recognized by several ESG rating providers for our performance in this area with sector-leading scores. Most recently, Wheaton was ranked by Sustainalytics as the top precious metals company. And perhaps more impressively, in the global top 50 out of over 12,000 companies across all sectors. As we look forward, our work in this arena will only grow in importance. While we are proud of the steps we have taken thus far, we recognize that sustainability is a journey and we are as committed as ever to constant and continual improvement and ensuring that we leave a positive impact. In summary, despite the unprecedented challenges of this year, Wheaton has emerged stronger than ever with a sustainable foundation and a very promising future. We achieved both record revenue and cash flow levels and exceeded the midpoint of our production guidance for the ninth consecutive year. For the first time, we introduced 10-year production guidance, demonstrating our belief in the steady, long-term expected organic growth from our portfolio. We listed on the London Stock Exchange in order to broaden our investment base to those looking for exposure to precious metals and to provide another point of entry for new internationally based shareholders to invest in Wheaton. With our value creating business model, commitment to operating responsibly and focus on high quality assets, we continue to provide investors with what we consider to be the best vehicle for investing into precious metals. And finally, on the backdrop of global uncertainty, I consider our privilege, our responsibility as good corporate citizens to continue to provide support where it is needed the most. It is times like these when assisting our most vulnerable is of the utmost importance. It is simply the right thing to do. So with that, I'd like to open up the call for questions. Operator. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We will now conduct the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. There will be a brief pause while we compile the Q&A roster. Your first question comes from Tyler Langton, J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, I guess maybe just starting with Slobo, I know you mentioned sort of you're expecting higher production you know, sort of this year. Can you just talk, I guess, a little bit about the profile that you expect, you know, for this year and the next couple of years, just kind of maybe relative to sort of the more, more normal levels that we saw in, in 2019? Uh, sure, Tyler, and uh, thanks again for picking up coverage uh, of, of Wheaton. Uh, appreciate having you on board and joining the, uh, joining the, uh, joining the team or the family. Salobo. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Salobo, uh, you know, very exciting what we see over the next few years at Salobo. Um, obviously, uh, I think they're about mid-60, 68% mechanically complete at the end of the year on, on the Phase 3 expansion. 
Um, and that's expected to turn on the switches sometime in 2022. Uh, and they're hopeful to sort of to, to get the completion test satisfied on that third uh, third phase of uh, expansion by the end of 2022. And so, as I said, a 50% increase in throughput. The current practice at the mine site is that they uh, stockpile lower grade materials, common with a lot of uh, the larger open pit copper mines around the world. They stockpile lower grade material and focus on processing higher grade material through the uh, through the mill. That's current practice. They haven't made a final decision yet as to their approach once the third phase opens up. Um, you know, economically, it makes sense uh, for for a stockpiled approach, and, uh, and and in fact, we've got some incentives provided to continue uh, to hope hopefully push Valle down that path in terms of uh, continuing the stockpiling approach. But uh, they haven't made that decision yet, so it's a little bit. A little bit tough for us to, to give an accurate forecast over the next few years in terms of how phase three is going to impact production. Our approach in our production forecast is that we've assumed that they're not going to stockpile, that we're going to push things through. So we think that's a, a pretty conservative approach. We think it has a, it infers a you know, conservative aspect to our own uh, production forecast for 2022 and beyond because um, you know economically we do think it does make sense for them to continue the stockpiling uh, you know, uh, um, approach in, in, in setting aside lower grade materials and, and pushing higher grade materials through the mill. Um, of particular excitement, though, on, on top of that is the uh, uh, back in December, Vale uh, again announced um, the the phase four expansion. It's the first time that they've discussed it publicly. We've had obviously discussions with them extensively on this, but. Uh, um, you know, they've discussed it you know, or released it publicly, and that would involve another uh, increase, an equal increase of, of uh, capacity, which would take it from 90,000 tons per day up to 120,000 tons per day. And expectations are that they would have that up and running uh, uh, by 2027. And so, you know, lots of, uh, lots of activity at Salobo, lots of growth at Salobo. The, the resource, you know, we've, we have released, released our update, updated resources and you can see the growth on that side and so uh, um, you know there's this this deposit just continues to deliver for us great no so that's helpful and then I guess just switching to uh, sort of the M&A I mean you mentioned sort of that the pipeline remains robust Can I guess you talk a little bit about you know sort of the types of deals you're seeing in terms of size and whether it's more you know base metal producers looking to do precious metal streams or on the precious metal side just just any color there would be great Tyler, I'm going to let Haytham answer that when he, he leads our corporate development front. So, Haytham, you're on the line. Sure. Thanks, Randy. And good morning, Tyler. How are you? Yep. Morning. Uh, just give you a bit of an overview. It's been pretty busy since the, the new year started. Lots of new opportunities to look at. They're primarily development stage opportunities that fit into a lot of them into our early deposit structure, which we've done a few times. And that's where we take precious metals as a byproduct from a base metal mine. And these type of opportunities, obviously, is where streaming works best. There's also some opportunities that, that focus on balance sheet repair and some expansion stage opportunities as well, where streaming can actually fund some of those expansions. Now, the fact that streaming is being considered for all these areas actually further highlights the competitive cost of capital that streams provide. But there are, there are some royalty packages out there in the, that we've seen in the past, but I can tell you there's nothing that, that made sense from a Wheaton perspective in large part because of their size or, or because they come with a significant amount of non-precious metal revenues. You know, we're going to continue to focus on uh, on the the larger, uh, I would say, development stage and expansion stage opportunities we're seeing right now. Great. Yeah, I would. Thanks. So. I would just Sorry, I would just add that what we're seeing is a lot of base metal growth. 
um, base metal companies with a kick up in, in copper prices and, and other base metals. There's, there's a lot of companies that are now looking at putting back into the ground, and so that's that's probably the biggest change. Is uh, and then of course you know a lot of those assets have precious metal byproduct streams that uh, that uh, will will provide a good competitive source of capital to help those companies grow. Great, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Tyler. Your next question comes from Ralph Profiti, Eight Capital. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for taking my questions. Hey, Ralph. Uh, Randy, I just had one, and I wanted to come back to Solobo um, and, and the potential for uh, Phase 4. Um, should we be thinking about that as sort of more of an underground operation, perhaps even moving to a block cave, or, or is this just sort of a, you know, a systemic extra... 12 million tons per annum, you know, being, being tacked on. And then, and I guess the second question is when you think about that incremental investment that Wheaton would, uh, you know, be, in, be inclined to uh, pursue, should we just sort of take the old agreement, which would come, come in around, say, 900 million contribution? Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I actually personally believe that there is a potential for block cave ultimately, but I can tell you that the... Uh, the reserves that we have within Open Pit at Salobo are going to be uh, the, the Phase Four expansion would be related to, to expansion of Open Pit operations. It wouldn't be related to any uh, any of the block cave side. But th there's there's no doubt that long-term potential for for uh, underground operations at Salobo does exist. It's just we've still got I think 20 plus 30 plus years of reserves in front of us, even with the expansion uh, throughput there. And so, you know, I think it'll be an open pit for a very, very long time. And phase four is related to open pit production. Um, and then, uh, sorry, the second part of the question? Uh, the uh, health, uh, the, the, oh, yeah. the reality is that um, uh, Valet uh, has one opportunity to ask us for, uh, for payment. And uh, we would expect that they... Uh, would ask us for payment on the uh, completion of phase three, and uh, you know that's a, that's a payment of somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, assuming that they complete um, uh, satisfy the completion test in 2022 of uh, 570 to 670 million dollars, and that's uh, that's the last of our uh, contingent payments uh, related to Salobo. Um, so if they expand to phase four, uh, there's no additional payment that uh, Wheaton would make. Yeah, just to reiterate, it's a one-time option that, that Valet has to collect an expansion payment. And so it's their choice as to collect it at the end of phase three or reserve it till the end of phase four. The payment, of course, you know, increases with scale but decreases with time. And, uh, and so it's... it's it's, uh, we fully expect them to be exercising that one-time option at the end of the phase, you know, once they satisfy the completion test on phase three. I got it. Much clearer now. Okay. Thanks very much. Great, Ralph. Thanks. Your next question comes from Josh Wolfson, RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hey, Josh. Thanks. Um, hey, good morning. Um, continuing on the theme with Salobo here, uh, with this next opportunity on the stockpiling, uh, you know, is there any sort of timelines you can provide in terms of when we could expect an update and, and just maybe from a technical perspective, is there anything to prevent the company from making this decision at a later date uh, versus before the expansion is finished? 
Well, so the driving, uh, from, a, from a critical timeline perspective, the only real difference at the site itself would be a, a bit of um, you know, um, surface preparation, but mo it's, the, it's the mobile uh, equipment fleet size that would have to be adjusted. And, uh, and you know, uh, in my experience, all that takes is 1-800-Caterpillar uh, or Komatsu. Um, they'll, they'll find a way to get, get that. And so, so there's, you know, that's not a critical, that doesn't take a lot of time to make adjustments to in terms of the size of the mobile fleet. But obviously, they need a, a slightly larger mobile fleet if they're going to be stockpiling some of the material versus feeding it all to the mill. It just uh, means more material being moved on a, on a daily basis. And so that's, that's kind of the critical path coming from the other end back. Um, you know, we have the updated resource, um, which is, is now public, uh, but we don't have the updated reserve yet because they haven't actually made the final decision as to what, what uh, um, plan is going forward. But the fact that the resource is in place means it's, it's really a matter of their, their engineering teams, their technical teams, uh, their, their, you know, the entire uh, group sort of coming down to, to that decision. We're, we're, of course, hopeful that it happens sometime, uh, you know, the earlier the better, just because it gives us that much more clarity on a go-forward basis. Um, and, and we've definitely dangled, you know, the incentives there from, from, the, from the difference in the expansion payments that we make. And so, you know, we're hopeful that it's uh, sometime in the first half of this year. Um, we're confident that it will be sometime this year, uh, but it should be in the first half of this year. Okay. Good to hear. And... Um Along, along the other operations for Valet, for, for Boise's Bay, uh, you know, could you provide an update on how that operation will, I guess, ramp up or look like over the course of this year, you know, given you're going to get some of the open pit material, but the underground will be ramping up? And then, you know, a uh, follow-on question to that, uh, historically, one of the opportunities cited has been maybe cobalt marketing, just given the jurisdiction that the asset operates in. Uh, and if you have any views on that, you know, today with, with uh, production commencing, that would be uh, of interest. Sure. Okay. Well, let's, let's start off with the actual asset itself. So, so you're correct. I mean, the, the, the underground was, uh, was uh, delayed mainly as a result of some suspensions in, in production that they had on site last year as a result of the pandemic. Um, in, a, in a weird way, it's a little bit of a positive for us because material that would have been mined last year was pushed into this year. Uh, but it has delayed the start of the underground. Um, you know, for us, it, it's not really a ramp up because the production levels are pretty consistent from open pit to underground in terms of the material. So, so you know, we're we're getting pretty good production flows already from the open pit, and uh, and you know, it's it's as of January 1st, irrespective of whether it comes from open pit or underground. And so, as the underground does come into play, um, you know, it'll it'll obviously uh, offset. And we've got the open pit there as a, a dampening device to make sure that we have good consistent production from the uh, from the pit itself. So things are looking good there. Um, from the marketing side, uh, you know, I can tell you we went through um, um, a a, uh, a product marketing um, um, uh, you know request for proposals, and we had very very strong interest in our product. Uh, we ultimately did select a, a marketing agent that is working through. This is a product that's well known. It's been produced for a long time, and so there is great high demand for, uh, you know, for the cobalt from Boise's Bay. And so we're pretty happy with what we've seen in terms of, uh, you know, we, we've now seen our first sales, and uh, and we're pretty happy with the way that's handling. Um, you know, the the uh, the 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 recent pricing action in in cobalt and some of the challenges that we've seen elsewhere around the world from other production 
has, has really sort of timed itself very well for us to start receiving our uh, our cobalt production here, and uh, and so um, it's you know this is a, a new product for us, and it's a it's a new method of marketing for us in terms of being a bulk product versus Dore or or um, you know uh, precious metals, um, um, and so so you know we are we're really looking at these first couple of years as uh, as opportunity to learn more about this market and, and see if there's ways we can further optimize it. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Your next question comes from Cosmos Chu from CIBC. Please go ahead. Hi, Cosmos. thanks. Uh, hi, thanks, Randy, Gary, and team. And great to see, you know, the dividend increase here. Um, maybe, you know, my questions are on the two uh, new acquisitions here. Maybe first off on the Mermado, um, you know, I see that uh, the first payment is $34 million, second payment is $4 million, but uh, they have not been paid yet. I'm just wondering, you know, the timing in terms of that payment. And then also, you know, when would you start receiving uh, production from that asset? Is it when you pay that first payment? Um, and then, you know, as a follow-on, uh, I'll, I'll ask those questions later on. Great, I appreciate the uh, <laughs> limited <laughs> pile of questions <laughs> at a time. Um, so yeah, no, the uh, the payments haven't been made yet because there was uh, some some um, tenure issues that had to be clarified down there, and uh, and and that is in process. It looks like uh, it's going to be happening very very soon here right now. Um, and yes, we will get uh, you know a bit of production from the upper zone, which is, is currently in production. Uh, it does date back to. Uh, I can't remember which date, but the date back dates back to last year, and so we will get a, a bit of a uh, um, an inventory of production that has built up over that time once the payment's made. You know, the July real, 1st. the real, the real. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Hayden. July first, dates back. July first, yeah. So it dates back to July first. So this would be a nice little bump, um, but it's not. That's not the reason we're in Marmato. The reason we're in Marmato is for that lower uh, lower deep zone, and, and all it takes is uh, a, a good look at the drilling results that. Uh, that the companies achieve there, and we're we're actually really excited about that that uh, geological potential, um, and and where that project, you know, where we think that project can go, and and then when you look at the uh, the new management team coming in with Eris, a uh, you know a long history of being able to build from projects like this, and so uh, um, you know we're we're pretty excited about that project. And Cosmos, just to make sure you, you're aware, we've not booked any production yet. Even though it accrues back to July 1st, uh, we've not booked any production in uh, 2024 Marmato, nor have we for Cosman. That Those will both be trued up in Q1 once payments are made. Okay, yeah, that, that was actually my follow-on question in terms of, you know, when, uh, so it's going to be in Q1 that we see slightly higher production for both likely Marmato and also Cozumel, because Cozumel, you've made the entire payment already, so that's coming in in Q1. Uh, but Marmato, maybe Q1 as well? As long as uh, we do make that payment. We do anticipate, I can tell you, we're all prepped to make that payment. It's just a question of getting the final uh, T's crossed, I's dotted. So as long as that happens in the next few weeks, then yes. And Cozumel is accrued as of December 1st, so it's not as long Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, you know, I, I don't think I saw that in the in the MDNA, but uh, again, I don't think it's huge, uh, Randy, but uh, how much have you sort of factored in in terms of uh, 2021 guidance from these two assets here? Or is that something that you can share with us? 
those are both factored in. We yeah. we we did uh, include Marmato. Again, Marmato is very small until we get to the deep zone, as Randy alluded to. Uh, Cozeman, though, we we certainly had uh, you know we did that acquisition in uh, December that we announced it. So that would be certainly included in uh, in 2021. I can tell you though, we we did use a conservative approach. We do think Capstone, uh, maybe not in 2021, but further on. Uh, will we'll grow production, so we think there's upside there uh, for sure in the, the five- and ten-year guidance, but it is in our current guidance. Some of the initiatives that Capstone's, um, you know, got underway at Cozumel will definitely uh, improve uh, production numbers there, So, and, and we expect to see that coming over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. And Randy, um, could you remind us in terms of the timing of the deep zone at, uh, at Mermado, potential timing? I think it's 2023, but Haytham, you're on the line. Do you uh, do you have that? Yeah, you bet. I think it is late 2023, early 2024 is the expected timing. Mm-hmm. Great. And then and then maybe another um, other uh, stream here. You know, Kino Hill. I'm seeing that uh, you know the mill started commissioning um, in November 2020. Um, you know, just given the timing and then concentrate and whatnot. Um, you know, when should we start expecting? Um, contribution from that uh, stream and you know to your knowledge how, how's the startup going so the, the startup was a little bit challenged mainly because of covid uh, risk management um, you know uh, October November there was a you know the, the, the second wave sort of came through and so there was a, a an increase in restrictions and it then it definitely made the startup challenging for them in terms of getting staff in there safely and making sure that they were you know maintaining uh, high risk management protocols that 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 definitely made it a little bit more challenging for them to get it up and running smoothly but they were successful in in getting first production through um you know it's a concentrate for us that uh, gets shipped off and so you know we're we're hopeful that as as you know as we seem to be coming out of this second wave and 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 uh, that the things will you know lighten up a bit for lexco in terms of uh Getting it up to full full speed, they are getting some good, you know, very very impressive, uh, um, you know, grades out of the underground, and so uh, you know things do look very promising from that front. Um, but so we fully expect that you know come spring they should be getting closer and closer to to, to full production levels. Yeah, so Cosmos, we didn't book any uh, production in uh, 2020 for Kino Hill, but you will you will see it start to accrue production uh, starting probably in the first quarter. I don't see any reason why we wouldn't have production mm-hmm. in the first quarter. Great, thanks, Patrick. And then maybe one more question here. You know, in Q4, you know, usually uh, producers like to catch up sales versus production. I guess we didn't really see it in Q4 2020 this year, maybe due yeah. to COVID-19 impact. Any insight in terms of when they, you know, that might reverse in terms of sales exceeding production in a later quarter? Is it going to be in Q1, Q2? Any any kind of insight there that you know of at this point in time? Well, um, and you're right. Uh, last year, because of the suspensions in uh, in the second quarter uh, and and into part of the third quarter in some places, um, sorry, first quarter and into the second quarter in some places. Um, you know, it, it it had a bit of an odd effect to uh, to those normal uh, you know produced but not yet sold. But you know, our, our, we we expect the numbers are not too far off of where we where we average on a on a quarterly basis. And so uh, you know, we we do expect it to normalize. Um, you know, 
it's always been our experience that the fourth quarter is the one where sales gets pushed because everyone squeezes the sort of the inventory pipeline to try and and boost uh, year-end results. And so, you know, that's that's usually the incentive for it, and that's one of the reasons why we typically do see that in the fourth quarter. Um, so I would hazard a guess that you know once we get back to normal uh, normal levels, which you know I think we are at pretty close to right now. It's probably not going to be until the fourth quarter again that we see something like that. Cosmos uh, probably, uh, you know, again, the incentive to just sort of make the year-end results look a little bit better is, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a continual objective, right? So. Mm-hmm. Thank, thanks again, Randy, Gary, Patrick, and Haytham. And uh, those are all the questions I have. Hopefully, Thank hopefully you, everyone's staying safe and uh, have a good weekend. Yep. Your next question comes from Brian MacArthur, Raymond James. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Um, hey Brian. Hey Brian. There's a lot of talk. Thank, good morning. There's a lot of talk in the industry about rate of return on uh, screens going forward. So I'm just kind of curious with your sell down of First Majestic, how you think about the rate of return on what I would call the San Dimas May 2018 deal because. When I sort of look at this, you put out 220 million. I've got my math right. You correct me if I'm wrong. You got 94 back already in cash, but now you've also sold 151 million shares, give or take, of First Majestic, and you have more to go, and you still have the stream. So, do, do you count or do you look at that sale of First Majestic? You know, when you do those rate of return calculations, I'm just curious how you philosophically think about that, given you know, the significance of the first majestic position. Look, uh, you know, philosophically, I look at it as a as we had an opportunity to do the stream at Cozeman with uh, Capstone, and uh, and one of the ways to pay for that was to uh, was to sell out of the shares of First Majestic and sort of put that money back into silver in the ground in at, at Cozeman, which is a good long life asset. Um, you know, we're we're strong supporters of First Majestic and what they're doing at Sandemass. We think that that asset is perfectly suited for First Majestic. And um, and and you know I think some of the initiatives that they've got underway is just going to make that asset even stronger than uh, than what it currently is now. You know they've they've got some good strong focus on on you know putting first off drill holes into you know into the ground, which which is always the, the first requirement in terms of uh, you know making sure you've got the exploration potential and the resources that that convert to reserves, but also. Just continued optimization of the mill uh, and improvements in terms of throughput and recovery rates and, and investing back into it. Sandamass is uh, uh, even even after this morning. Sandamass is First Majestic's uh, flagship, and so it's always going to be a core focus of their investment. We were comfortable shareholders and supportive shareholders of them, but you know we saw an opportunity to uh, to also you know stay focused, and, and we're also you know very very bullish on silver. Um, but you know we uh, you know we're very comfortable with that. So in terms of rate of return, Gary. Yeah, look, Brian, you have to realize you know we view the uh, the Santa Mass restructuring that we did back in 2018 as uh, a, a very successful transaction and a real win-win uh, transaction, one that uh, you know has. Uh, um, benefited First Majestic, who's done a wonderful job uh, with the asset, with the uh, um, exploration success that that they've had. But uh, you know, the the original stream we received uh, the the current stream, um, 
And uh, the current stream, you know, we we modified uh, the the stream so that we were getting about 60% of what we were previously uh, getting. And for the uh, the 40% that we gave up, um, uh, we received $151 million of First Majestic uh, shares. And so you have to take that in, into account, right? So we got $370 million, and then the Gold Court gave us uh, $10 million to, to um, get rid of their uh, guarantee relative to that asset. So we, we received $380 million for the original stream, um, now we've uh, we've received 156 million dollars so far uh, on as at uh, December 31st, 2020, uh, in uh, proceeds from selling the First Majestic shares, and we we had about 100 million dollars uh, of First Majestic shares at year end. So you know, let's call it 260 million dollars relative to our original. Uh, Valuation of 151 million dollars. So, you know, we've uh, we've generated as at uh, December uh, 31st, 2020, you know, about a 70% uh, return on the First Majestic shares, and that's reflective of you know the the fantastic job that First Majestic has done with Sandamass, and that combined with you have to remember we were dealing with about a $1200 gold uh, price environment uh, when we consummated that deal um so with gold you know being up over 40% uh, since then uh, um you know the combination of those two things has resulted in uh you know a, a, a very significant return um you know on the stream you know the we have received 90 over 94 million dollars uh, to date on on the you know the amended stream um and uh you know the the mine life there has been extended significantly uh with the exploration success that first majestic has has uh, had so um you know uh that i think was a very successful uh uh Restructuring, and um, you know, we're we're very happy with uh, the way that that asset is performing. Great, thanks. And maybe just a second question on the Voices Bay deal. Um, technically, can and with all this talk about marketing, and as you've mentioned, it's a premium product. Is the reference what is actually the reference price for the cobalt price that you're going to get post marketing? I mean, if we get into a situation where you had a two tiered market or something, is it, is it technically, I just can't remember. Is it technically defined to reference a certain price or is there some potential? We have, yeah, Brian, we have, we currently have a, an agency agreement where we're, and we sell it with at block prices over the period. Right. And so, so obviously we monitor the, uh, the the spot market prices, but but um, but each each block that gets sold is is you know is, is assigned a price uh, at the time of the uh, transaction itself on a go forward basis. So um, you know there's a number of different reference uh, uh, points out there or reference prices out there, uh, and and obviously we monitor that and, and our agent monitors that in terms of how that uh, moves forward. But uh, it's not directly related to those agency prices. It's just there for reference. Yeah, Brian, it's going to be difficult because there's a, it used to be Metals Bulletin, but I think they may have changed their name, was was the reference that was most uh, applicable. Uh, LME, 
it isn't a, a great proxy, but what the LME price, if you look at that, will give you a, a proportional or a directional uh, movement. You know, and you can look at LME, and you can see LME prices have gone from mid-teens to well into mid-20s. So, uh, you know, over the past, uh, you know, into late 2020, so just as we were starting to sell our first products and we've made our first sale, um, you know, pricing had very much improved. But as far as an exact number, uh, it's going to be tough to uh, to forecast other than a directional move from LME, unfortunately. Right, but just so I'm clear, if I mean there is a philosophical discussion out there in the market that, you know, cobalt from Canada might be worth more than cobalt from let's say places in Africa, it, it would be a negotiated thing. And if clients wanted to pay a premium for these stuff from Canada, it would be negotiated price through your mark your agency that technically you would get a premium if you if you could do that and that existed in the market. It, it's not like it's a cast in stone reference point to anything. Exactly. Right. It's um you know it's a unique product that comes from Voices Bay and it's got it, you know it has been it's it's in the marketplace. It's well known in the marketplace and so there's people that really like this product and uh and and um you know uh they're the ones that are stepping up. Our first sale happened to someone that uh, that has been using Voices Bay cobalt for a long time and it was for a good price so Great. Thank you all for answering all my questions. Thank you, Brian. Your next question comes from Richard Hatch from Berenberg. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, yeah, morning, um, Randy and team, and um, Richard, congrats on a very good set of numbers. Um, got a few questions. Um, first one, just on, on Salobo, um, I wonder if you might just be able to put a bit more meat on the bones of what you could potentially um, kind of realise in terms of production levels, you know, just on the various uh, mills. I appreciate, you know, it's quite difficult. You don't necessarily have a full full picture there, but would you be able to give us any kind of sort of steer on, you know, on the various sort of three and four expansion, what that could take production levels to? Well, I, what I can tell you is the amount of tons that uh, each one of those expansions relates to. Uh, currently, the mine is running at around a 60,000 ton per day uh, capacity. Uh, the, the, the phase three will take it from 60,000 to 90,000 tons per day. And the phase four, the proposed phase four, it's not, uh, not definite yet by any means, but, uh, but it sure looks like it's shaping up, uh, will be another 30,000 tons per day. So it'll take the mine ultimately from currently 60,000 tons per day to 120,000 tons per day. Which, which still, when you look at copper mines around the world, is you know large open pit copper mines around the world is not, you know, it's not the largest in the world by any means. It's, it, it, that's a you know that's a pretty normal operating rate, and, and in fact very similar to uh, to uh, what we see at Penasquito, uh, where there's even higher strip ratios. So um, you know now the question is what what grade did they choose in stockpiling? And it's very tough. I mean we we know that currently right now. Uh, they are stockpiling lower-grade material. They have been ever since they started up the mine back in 2012 and setting aside the lower-grade material and building up a low-grade stockpile, which will ultimately, at the very end of the mine life, be processed through the mill. And, and they are doing that. And so current production levels sort of do reflect, um, you know, this stockpiling approach. Now, we know that, that you know, uh, if it's easy for us to forecast, and in fact, that's what we have included in our long-term forward forecasts, is 
is assuming that they process all ore mined through the uh, the uh, uh, the mill and not and do not stockpiling uh, stop stockpiling and we feel we feel that that's a, you know a very conservative base case of which there's def, you know we feel there's definitely upside over and above that. However, the quantum of you know the amount of material that they stockpile, uh, if they keep on using the same you know practices they have right now, you would you would you know imply that there's a possibility of some uh, some some uh, you know uh, you know of a 50% increase this time around. But you know there's, there's it's just not going to be like that. Typically, when you scale up in terms of capacity throughputs, any crossover grades for stockpiling will drop a bit as you sort of uh, adapt to that higher capacity through the mill. And so, you know, it, it's just, it's a, it's a very broad spectrum of possible results that I just, yeah, you know, it's tough for us to put, a, put any more guidance on it other than the fact that we're confident that it'll be higher than what we've got in our forecast. Uh, but the quantum higher really does come down to how much material they decide to set aside in the stockpiling campaign and how much material, you know, they decide to, to move, you know, through the mill. And, and, and it is, it's an entire spectrum of results that's, it's very flexible on their side. Um, what I can, you know, again reinforce is the fact that not only do we feel it makes economic sense for them to continue stockpiling, but there is a, a pretty healthy incentive, as Gary mentioned earlier on, about a $100 million incentive over and above in our expansion payment if they commit to, uh, um, you know, a, a continuous stockpiling program and focus on our grade materials through the mill. And so, so the combination of you know, uh, strong economics, stronger economics, plus plus that incentive. We we do hope that they make the decision, but in the end, it's Valet's decision as to their approach there. And I, I just wish I could give you more guidance than that, but I can't. No, that's fine. That's that's super helpful. Um, just um, a quick one on um, Rosemont. Um, when, when do you you mentioned that you push that into your long-term guidance? When do you have that coming on online in your new numbers? Uh, well, we have it coming on about. Six years out, but that's you know we we actually think HUD Bay is making good progress on on their uh, discussions with uh, you know in terms of the appeal of that uh, that decision, and uh, in fact HUD Bay's own guidance is that they expect to announce or, or, or hopefully get to a decision point sometime here within the next uh, I think it's a few months actually uh, within this year definitely and so given that there's about a two and a half to three year build time on that and, and there is a you know there's a reasonable chance that they could move forward and even if they're not successful in, in appealing the recent decision they do have the opportunity to try and shift the operations onto privately owned land and move forward it would be a smaller scale operation it really doesn't make sense but but sometimes you yeah, you're forced to do things that don't make sense in order to get around these uh, challenges but um, you know they're they are definitely making good progress in that front, and we we we're confident that they'll uh, that they'll be successful. And in that event, there's we think a pretty good chance it'll come within our five-year guidance. But uh, we just felt uh, again to be on the conservative side, uh, we're, we're confident they'll get there. But uh, it, even if it wasn't the five years, we probably wouldn't see it until the fifth year of that five-year guidance. And so uh, it really uh, is um, you know it's, it's something that's going to be. Uh, uh, you know, out. Uh, I think you know, good chance it'll be six years out, seven years out, and and so we've got it sort of uh, supplying production through the six years, six to ten of the ten-year guidance. Cool. Okay. Um, just quickly on the dividends. Um, I mean, it's great to see the dividend hiked again. Um, great to see the yield increasing. Um, I suppose you know you've got a, a balance sheet that's going to move into net cash 
um, in Q1. Um, where's, where's your head at in terms of um, giving it a material hike? Um, I suppose if I look at my numbers, you know, we're on a 5 6% free cash rate yield, 1.5% one, one on dividend yield, so maybe there's scope to, to give it a bit more of a push. Um, do, do you think you give it another year or two and see where the deal shape out just to give yourself that extra firepower, or do you think we could expect to see dividends pushed a bit higher to, you know, 12 months out or so? Well, it's important to keep in mind that we do average uh, our dividend uh, over the previous four quarters of cash flow. And so as we see this organic growth that we've just discussed uh, over the next few years, uh, we know that there's going to be upward pressure on this dividend just by virtue of the fact that we do tie it to our cash flows. And, and if, we, if we see some, some renewed strength in precious metal prices, that'll, that'll also uh, put upward pressure on that dividend. And so, so it's naturally going to be there. Um, you know, Richard, I can, I can tell you that, uh, that we're, we're focused on trying to add to our portfolio and, and if we're successful. Now, we only do it if it's accretive and if it's high quality. We're very, very selective. I can tell you that, you know, our hit rate is about one in a hundred in terms of projects that we look at versus ones that we, uh, we close on. And so we are very, very selective of what we invest into, but our objective is to continue growing the company with ounces in the ground. And uh, if we're not successful, uh, that means that you're right. This year, we're going to build up an incredible, incredibly strong cash balance on the, on the balance sheet, and uh, um, that's not where I'd like to be. And, and what that means is that uh, you know, given given uh, if at the end of this year, if we haven't made any other significant acquisitions in terms of putting money back into the ground, then we will definitely be entertaining a uh, the potential of increasing the uh, payout ratio from 30% to possibly as high as. 40% or 50%. Uh, you know, I, I don't see it jumping to 50. It would be the next natural step would be 40. But th- that's only going to come when we have the cash to give back to our shareholders. We're not going to borrow to give back to our shareholders. We will borrow to put, you know, to, to acquire ounces in the ground. But uh, our focus is on uh, on on growing the company. Uh, but if we can't if we can't see good opportunities to grow the company, then the money will come back to our shareholders. Yeah, special dividend consideration or not? Uh, you know, un- unlikely, but uh, time will tell. If we start to get too large of a, of a, you know, I mean, of a, of a balance sheet, if, if we get too much cash on hand, uh, then then you know, there's there's those things can be considered. It's unlikely this year. Okay, and um, thank you. And, and my absolute last one is just for, for Hayson. Like, if you were to look at the kind of the, the pipeline for deals at the moment, and I guess one of the other guys touched on it a bit earlier on, but if you were to look at the pipeline at the moment, how co- how confident are you that there's ones that are, you know, kind of the the pen is kind of hovering over the paper, or is it the case that there's still quite a lot of work to do before we kind of see news flow on, on deals? You know, just to answer that question, Richard, I, I would say, you know, we probably have uh, uh, 10 to 12, uh, 100 to $300 million opportunities in the pipeline that we're constantly looking at and, and that we hope to be able to get a couple of those across the line. Um, you know, uh, how confident am I? I think uh, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we add, a, do a creative transactions. And, you know, I'm fairly confident we'll be successful in 2021. Very helpful. Thanks for your time, guys. Much appreciated. Thank you, Richard. Uh, one more question, please. Your last question comes from Trevor Turnbull, Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Trevor, good, good to hear you. Good to thanks, uh, Randy, and uh, forgive me for the ultimate uh, last uh, Salobo question. Could you just <laughs> maybe briefly uh, talk a little bit about the relationship between the copper and the gold, and how uh, if 
if you're going to see sustained higher copper prices, does that work towards Valley making a decision either one way or the other on the uh, stockpiling issue in terms of uh, the expansion? Well, there's, there's no doubt it has an impact on that because, um, you know, they get 100% of the copper revenue and about 25% of the gold revenue. So the higher copper prices uh, will definitely incentivize them to push that forward. Uh, there is, a, on, on, a, on, a, on a more global corporate basis down there, uh, Valet has a very continually, every time you ever see them present, they're constantly focused on trying to expand their presence in base metals. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of exposure to iron ore and it's a, it's a continual message that the, uh, the expectation is to try and double the contribution from the base metals uh, division of, uh, of Vale. And, and Solobo, and Solobo and Solobo 4 is, is continually referenced. I uh, was at a panel discussion earlier on this, this, uh, this week where the PDAC were, where it was referenced. And so, so, you know, we do think that stronger copper prices even provides more incentive for them to go down this path um, and, and try and reap some of the benefit of these copper prices uh, today. And, and sorry, so just on the simplest level, higher copper grades does correlate with the higher gold grades. So it all works in the same direction. It's, uh, it's beautiful that way, isn't it? <laughs> yes. All right. Exactly. Thanks, Randy. <laughs> thank you, Trevor, and thank you, everyone. Uh, in closing, we do believe Wheaton is very well positioned to continue delivering value to our shareholders for a number of different reasons. Firstly, by having low and predictable costs that result in some of the highest margins in the entire precious metal space, resulting in very strong operating cash flows. Secondly, through our steady organic growth profile and proven track record of accretive quality acquisitions. Thirdly, by offering our shareholders exposure to some of the highest quality mines in the world through our portfolio of long-life, low-cost assets. And lastly, by being a leader amongst precious metal streamers in sustainability through initiatives such as our CSR fund and strong support of our partners and the communities in which we live and operate. I do look forward to speaking with all of you again soon. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Thank you. This concludes this conference call for today. Thank you for participating. Please disconnect your lines. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.